Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. Today we're going to be reading The New American Religion, which is pages 183 to 199 of The Four Crafts. We'll be doing the reading portion of the program first, which is 34 minutes long. So if you want to skip over this portion, we'll get into the reading and commentary portion at around 36 minutes into the podcast so you can skip forward if you're listening to the podcast to listen to that part Uh, if you're listening to it live then (laughs) you can either listen to it or just uh, wait for 36 minutes we'll be going live at 6pm on Friday the 28th of October 2022 Let's get into the reading portion of the of the program. This is New American Religion, pages 183 to 199 of the Four Crafts of the Devil's Kingdom. Thanks for listening. The New American Religion, pages 183 to 199 of Four Crafts. Program for Friday, October the 28th, 2022 at 6 p.m. Mountain Time. Listen to the podcast, tub.com. The American restored Latter-day Saint religion lasted less than 20 years within the boundaries of the United States. Lawyers, priests and politicians could not tolerate it, so the new religion of revelation was driven out of the country that boasted of freedom and liberty for all. Even at the early date the Constitution was almost hanging by thread, with only a few honorable men to defend it. The Prophet declared, the different states, and even Congress itself, have passed many laws diametrically contrary to the Constitution of the United States. Shall we be such fools as to be governed by its laws, which are unconstitutional? No. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith politicians do almost anything to gain or maintain votes. On November the 4th, 1833, the state militia, under order from Lieutenant Governor Boggs, marched into Jackson County to disarm the mobbers and the Mormons. But only the Mormons were disarmed, enabling Boggs, the militia and several ministers to perform repeated acts of violence against the unarmed saints. Parley Pratt said it was a heart-rending sight to see the Mormons scattering in every direction and trying to cross the Missouri River to keep from being killed. Burglar attacks by the various ministers of religion and the newspapers were relentless. Word of the difficulties with Mormons spread throughout Missouri, and soon several thousand Missourians, especially those from Jackson County, crossed the Missouri River into the northern part of the state to help their fellow southerners rid the state forever of the Yankee abolitionist Mormons. Governor Boggs broke his oath of office when he issued an extermination order upon the Mormons because of public pressure. 
Joseph Smith voiced his solution on how to handle the problem of politicians not obeying the laws of the Constitution. The Constitution should contain a provision that every officer of the government who should neglect or refuse to extend the protection guaranteed in the Constitution should be subject to capital punishment. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith among the mass of corrupt politicians, however, there occasionally is an employee of the government who stands up and valiantly defends freedom and liberty. Such a man was General Denis Payne. On November 1st, 1838, Samuel Lucas issued an order to Brig. Genesis Denis Payne, Brigadier General Denis Payne, Sir N. You will take Joseph Smith and the other prisoners into the public square of Far West and shoot them at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. Samuel D. Lucas, Major General Commanding but General Denis Payne, in great and righteous indignation, promptly returned the following reply to his superior. It is cold-blooded murder. I will not obey your order. My brigade shall march for liberty tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. And if you execute these men, I will hold you responsible before an earthly tribunal, so help me God. 1. W. Denis Payne, Brig. Genesis, THC 3, 190-191, FTNT. The Prophet Joseph related this same incident from his point of view. Brothers Hiram Smith and Amrza Liman were brought prisoners into camp. The officers of the militia held a court-martial and sentences to be shot on Friday morning on the public square of Far West as a warning to that Mormons. However, notwithstanding their sentence and determination, they were not permitted to carry their murderous sentence into execution. Having an opportunity of speaking to General Wilson, I inquired of him why I was thus treated. I told him I was not aware of having done anything worthy of such treatment. That I had always been a supporter of the Constitution and of democracy. His answer was, I know it, and that is the reason why I want to kill you, or have you killed. General Denis Payne continued to help the Mormons, and he labored for the release of Joseph and the others. They were imprisoned until the summer of 1839, when they escaped to Illinois. From that time until his death, Joseph was considered a fugitive from justice. Joseph, Sidney Rigdon, Elias Higby and O.P. Rockwell journeyed to the nation's capital to present their grievances and a reader's appeal before the President of the United States and to Congress. Perez. Martin Van Buren, however, was one of those politicians who would not risk losing any political votes. He listened to Joseph Smith relate their grievances of pillage, plunder, rape, robbery and murder. He looked at the claims Joseph gave him against Missouri from 491 individuals for about $1,381,000. Joseph described in detail, During my stay I had an interview with Martin Van Buren, the president, who treated me very insolently, and it was with great reluctance he listened to our message, which, when he had heard, he said, Gentlemen, your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you. And, if I take up for you, I shall lose the vote of misery. His whole course went to show that he was an office seeker, that self-aggrandizement was his ruling passion, and that justice and righteousness were now a part of his composition. Joseph had earlier commented on how flippant and foolish the congressman acted, there is such an itching disposition to display their oratory on the most trivial occasions, and so much etiquette, bowing and scraping, twisting and turning to make a display of their witticism, that it seems with rather a display of folly and show, more than substance and gravity, such as becomes a great nation like ours. 
when Van Buren came up for election, the Saints had every reason to reject him, and they had little more reason to vote for Henry Clay, the candidates for the office of President of the United States at present before the people are Martin Van Buren and Henry Clay. It is morally impossible for this people, in justice to themselves, to vote for the re-election of President Van Buren N. Dashaman, who criminally neglected his duties as Chief Magistrate in the cold and unblushing manner which he did, when appealed to for aid in the Missouri difficulties. In speaking of Mr. Clay, his politics are diametrically opposed to ours. He inclines strongly to the old school of Federalists, and as a matter of course would not favor our cause, neither could we conscientiously vote for him. And we have yet stronger objections to Mr. Van Buren on other grounds. He has sung the old song of Congress and Dash, Congress has no power to redress your grievances. When the President of the United States proved to be worthless in helping the Mormons, church leaders turned to the legislative branch of government. Joseph prepared a memo reviewing the acts of violence, and it was submitted to Congress by Senator Richard M. Young from Illinois. This must be one of the most gory, inhuman records of injustice ever recorded, and sounds more like it came from some heathen nation rather than from a nation living under the heavenly banner of the U.S. Constitution. The document was referred to the Senate Committee on the Judiciary. One of the concluding paragraphs is included here, for these wrongs, the Mormons ought to have some redress. Yet how and where shall they seek and obtain it? Your Constitution guarantees to every citizen, even the humblest, the enjoyment of life, liberty, and property. It promises to all, religious freedom, the right to all to worship God beneath their invited fig tree, according to the dictates of their conscience. It guarantees to all the citizens of the several states the right to become citizens of any one of the states, and to enjoy all the rights and immunities of the citizens of the state of his adoption. Yet of all these rights have that Mormons been deprived. They have, without a cause, without a trial, been deprived of life, liberty and property. They have been persecuted for their religious opinions. They have been driven from the state of Missouri, at the point of the bayonet, and prevented from enjoying and exercising the rights of citizens of the state of Missouri. It is the theory of our laws, that for the protection of every legal right, there is provided a legal remedy. What, then, we would respectfully ask, is the remedy of that Mormons? THC 437, C24-38 for entire 15-page memo. On March the 4th, 1840, the Committee on the Judiciary released their decision that this case did not justify or authorize any interposition by the federal government. It was Kingcraft at work. The Saints also appealed to the legislature of the state of Missouri, to state and federal courts, and before judges and juries and governors. Many Mormons were descendants of the Founding Fathers who established the Constitution. Now they were being deprived of the very rights their ancestors had tried to secure for their posterity. On May 18, 1843, Joseph met with a Missouri judge, Stephen A. Douglas, and related to him the account of their terrible persecutions and also his interview with President Martin Van Buren. On this occasion Joseph related two monumental prophecies, dined with Judge Stephen A. Douglas who is presiding at court. After dinner Judge Douglas requested President Joseph to give him a history of the Missouri persecution, which he did in a very minute manner, for about three hours. He also gave a relation of his journey to Washington City, and his application in behalf of the Saints to Mr. Van Buren, the President of the United States, 
for address and Mr. Van Buren's pusillanimous reply. President Smith, in concluding his remarks, said that if the government, which received into its coffers the money of citizens for its public lands, while its officials are rolling in luxury at the expense of its public treasury, cannot protect such citizens in their lives and property, it is an old granny anyhow. And I prophesy in the name of the Lord God of Israel, unless the United States redress the wrongs committed upon the saints in the state of Missouri and punish the crimes committed by her officers, that in a few years the government will be utterly overthrown and wasted, and there will not be so much as a potsherd left, for their wickedness in permitting the murder of men, women and children, and the wholesale plunder and extermination of thousands of her citizens to go unpunished, thereby perpetrating a foul and corroding blot upon the fair name of this great republic, the very thought of which would have caused the high-minded and patriotic framers of the Constitution of the United States to hide their faces with shame. Judge, you will aspire to the Presidency of the United States. And if ever you turn your hand against me or the Latter-day Saints, you will feel the weight of the hand of Almighty upon you. And you will live to see and know that I have testified the truth to you. For the conversation of this day will stick to you through life. Douglas, like most candidates in the Kingcraft system, chose to ignore the Constitution and the inalienable rights of its citizens and catered to the clamor of a vicious populace who hated Mormons. In his flowering political speech against them in 1857, he said, It will be the duty of Congress to apply the knife and cut out this loathsome and disgusting ulcer. No temporizing policy, no halfway measures will then answer. In my opinion the first step should be the absolute and unconditional repeal of the Organic Act and dash blocking the territorial government out of existence, on the ground that they are alien enemies and outlaws, denying their allegiance and defying the authorities of the United States. From that moment on, his political career and his health went downhill. Within a year of his defeat, the 48-year-old Douglas died, a broken-hearted man and dash thus fulfilling the prophecy of Joseph Smith. When the Mormons had voted against the Whig Duncan because of his position against the Mormons, the Whigs cried dirty politics and claimed that the Mormons had exchanged religion for politics. They entered into a crusade against the Mormons which knew no bounds, as Governor Ford wrote, the Whigs generally, and a part of the Democrats, determined upon driving the Mormons out of the state, and everything connected with the Mormons became political. Without a presidential candidate they could support, the Saints existed in a hostile political climate in Illinois that was mixed with hatred and self-defense. Without being able to cast a favorable vote, the Mormons decided on a candidate of their and dash Joseph Smith. On May 17, 1844, a convention was called and the Reform Party was born, with Joseph Smith as its presidential candidate. He declared his views thusly, I feel it to be my right and privilege to obtain what influence and power I can, lawfully, in the United States, for the protection of injured innocence. And if I lose my life in a good cause, I am willing to be sacrificed on the altar of virtue, righteousness and truth, in maintaining the laws and constitution of the United States, if need be, for the general good of mankind. The position of the controlling politicians was then similar to the chief priests and Pharisees who moaned, if we let him, Christ, thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. Politically corrupt men will resort to even murder to keep their place and nation, and that's why Joseph said, if I lose my life in a good cause, 
the Lord had once warned him that the enemy in the secret chambers seeketh your lives. So the kingcrafters immediately began holding such secret meetings and plotting Joseph Smith's destruction. But surprisingly, Joseph Smith's nomination was taken seriously by many voters throughout their country. State and federal politics had sunk to such a low in the United States that a new candidate presented a refreshing hope. Joseph once remarked, when I get hold of the Eastern papers and see how popular I am, I am afraid myself that I shall be elected. One of the ministers at that time, a Peter Cartwright, also noted, when Joe Smith was announced a candidate for president of these United States, almost every infidel association in the Union declared in his favor. Of course, to him anyone voting for Joseph Smith was an infidel. Another non-Mormon, W.M. Daniels, clearly saw the reason for Joseph Smith's increasing popularity. He presented such an array of wisdom and talent that the rotten theories of demagogues began, one by one, to become odious, and he rapidly grew in popularity and strength. The principles and measures he proposed, struck at the root of every vice that infected the government, threatening future calamity to her institutions. His principles harmonized with the primitive organization of the government, from which it has been twisted by disloyal spirits. Hundreds, if not thousands, of Mormon elders mounted the circuit in support of their candidate and presented his views on the powers and policies of government. They disseminated copies of his political platform and also sent them to leading newspapers throughout the nation. One item that he mentioned was that when the poor people of the country can be trampled on by mob, when will such a lawless mob move on to others? He wrote a letter to James Bennett saying, Where, sir, will be your safety or the safety of your children, if my children can be led to the slaughter with impunity by the hand of murderous rebels? DHC 5, 158, Joseph Smith said that it was time for someone to hold that office who would be a president for the United States, instead of using it for personal gain, power and recognition. He challenged Henry Clay, Can anything be drawn from your life? character, or conduct that is worthy of being held up to the gaze of this nation as a model of virtue, charity or wisdom? I hate the imbecility of American statesmen. I detest the shrinkage of candidates for office from pledges and responsibility. Joseph saw the destiny of this nation, but new ways of averting the civil war. According to George Q. Cannon and stated in his book on the prophet, certain it is that had Joseph Smith been elected President of the United States and had been sustained by Congress in his policies, this land would have been spared the desolating war which filled its hamlets and fields with carnage and its homes with sobbing widows and orphans. But because of the general wickedness of the American people and their leaders, Joseph Smith prophesied in 1832 of the Civil War, CDNC 87 which commenced 28 years afterwards, and he said it was because of a chastening hand and retribution by divine power. How interesting that Missourians David Atchison and Samuel Lucas, who wanted the Mormons driven out and killed, said in 1838, from late outrages committed by the Mormons, civil war is inevitable. At that time, however, they thought it would be a battle against the Mormons, but their words were fulfilled in the war among their own people. Similarly in a public meeting at Liberty, Missouri, in 1836, the chairman, John Byrd, wrote some propositions, one of which was, second, 
that it is the fixed and settled conviction of this meeting that unless the people commonly called Mormons will agree to stop immediately the emigration of their people to this county and take measures to remove themselves from it, a civil war is inevitable. He, too, thought this war would be between the American people and the Mormons, but it was a prophecy to fall upon his own head and among his own people. The people of Missouri thought about war, talked about war, and wanted war. Civil war, they cried, and civil war they got. Joseph prophesied of this war again just before he was killed. Several of the officers of the troops in Carthage, and other gentlemen, curious to see the prophet, visited Joseph in his room in Carthage jail. General Smith asked them if there was anything in his appearance that indicated he was the desperate character his enemies represented him to be, and he asked them to give him their honest opinion on the subject. The reply was, no. Sir, your appearance would indicate the very contrary, General Smith. But we cannot see what is in your heart, neither can we tell what are your intentions. To which Joseph replied, Very true, gentlemen, you cannot see what is in my heart, and you are therefore unable to judge me or my intentions. But I can see what is in your hearts, and will tell you what I see. I can see that you thirst for blood, and nothing but my blood will satisfy you. It is not for crime of any description that I and my brethren are thus continually persecuted and harassed by our enemies, but there are other motives, and some of them I have expressed, so far as relates to myself. And inasmuch as you and the people thirst for blood, I prophesy, in the name of the Lord, that you shall witness scenes of blood and sorrow to your entire satisfaction. Your souls shall be perfectly satiated with blood, and many of you who are now present shall have an opportunity to face the cannon's mouth from sources you think not of. And those people that desire this great evil upon me and my brethren, shall be filled with regret and sorrow, because of the scenes of desolation and distress that await them. They shall seek for peace, and shall not be able to find it. Gentlemen, you will find what I have told you to be true. Years later, the very forces that caused such pain and persecution for the Mormons would in turn receive even more upon themselves, as Richard Little I stated, the same forces, commanded by many of the same officers, that had murdered and driven the Mormons from Missouri, crossed into Kansas there to wreak their bloody designs upon the inhabitants of that territory and thus to set the stage for the terrible conflict that was soon to engulf the nation. Details of this conflict and subsequent bloodshed were explained by B.H. Roberts. The struggle began by the abolition party of the North organizing emigrant aid societies and sending emigrants of their own faith into Kansas. The slaveholders of Missouri also sent settlers representing their faith and interests into the new territory in the hope of bringing it into the Union as a slave state. This brought on a border warfare in which the settlements of western Missouri and eastern Kansas alternately suffered from the raids and counter-raids of the respective parties through some six years before the outbreak of the Civil War. As to which were the more lawless or cruel, the fanatical abolitionists, or the pro-slavery party, the Jayhawkers, as the organized bands of ruffians of the former party were called, or the Bushwhackers, as the similarly organized bands of the pro-slavery men were called, is not a question necessary for me to discuss here. Both held their laws in contempt, and vied with each other in committing atrocities. The western counties of Missouri, where the Latter-day Saints had suffered so cruelly at the hands of people of those counties some 18 or 20 years before, were in this border warfare laid desolate, and all the hardships the Missourians had inflicted upon the Saints were now visited upon their heads, only more abundantly. 
THC3, Oxyalxii, Introduction, while this description confines the scenes of violence and rapine to the border counties south of the Missouri River, it included Jackson County, however, which was one of the heaviest sufferers both in this border warfare and subsequently during the Civil War in Dash Still, the counties north of that stream also suffered from lawlessness and violence. Ibed. P. And Missouri, when all things are considered, and especially western Missouri, suffered more than any other state of the Union. In other states the war lasted at most but four years. But counting her western border warfare in the struggle for Kansas, the war was waged in western Missouri from 1855 to 1865, ten years. And for many years after the close of the Civil War, a guerrilla warfare was intermittently carried on by bands of outlaws harbored in western Missouri and Dash, especially in Jackson, Ray, Caldwell and Clay counties and Dash that terrorized the community and shocked the world by the daring and atrocity of their crimes in Dash including bank robberies in open day, express train wrecking and robberies, and murders. Not until 1881 was this effectually stopped by the betrayal of murder of the outlaw chief of these bands. Dead. He. LXXII, the prophet Joseph knew that there were men in political offices who were not fit to be there, and he warned the people about those galvanic cronies who do nothing but draw money from the treasury and promote their bogus democracy. There was the hiring of excessive government employees, too many were living on public payroll, government was becoming a bureaucracy, and it was an open forum for jobs, favors and contracts. With government so large, the usurpation of unconstitutional powers, inevitable controls, and a tide of laws and regulations would soon drown the citizens with taxes and loss of free agency. As Joseph said, the Philistine lords have shorn our nation of its goodly locks in the lap of Delilah. And over 100 years later, Barry Goldwater said in retrospect, throughout history, government has proved to be the chief instrument for thwarting man's liberty. Government represents power in the hands of some men to control and regulate the lives of other men. And power, as Lord Acton said, corrupts men. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Joseph knew that he would suffer death, not from the common mobocrats themselves, but from orders given by those in high political positions. The situation is comparable to the drug peddler on the street who is guilty of criminal activity. But it is actually the manufacturer. The man in high and secret places producing the poison, that is the real culprit. Conspirators behind the scenes are the worst offenders. Political demagogues became more determined to destroy Joseph Smith than they were in trying to promote themselves. Meetings were held to determine the plan of action, 9.40 a.m. and dash Mr. Woods and Mr. Reed called. They said another consultation of the officers had taken place and the former orders of the governor for marching to Novi with the whole army were countermanded. Dr. Southwick was in the meeting, seeing what was going on. He afterward told Stephen Markham that the purpose of the meeting was to take into consideration the best way to stop Joseph Smith's career, as his views on government were widely circulated and took like wildfire. They said if he did not get into the presidential chair this election, he would be sure to the next time and if Illinois and Missouri would join together and kill him, they would not be brought to justice for it. There were delegates in said meeting from every state in the Union except three. Governor Ford and Captain Smith were also in the meeting. 
Brigham Young referred to the councils and meetings in which Joseph Smith's death was planned. He, Joseph Smith, stepped forth like a man and proffered his services to save the nation that is now breaking, and he would have saved it, if they had permitted him. What did they bestow upon him in return? They made a martyr of him. They succeeded in shedding his blood and that of the Patriarch Hiram. They shed the blood of the innocent, and the nation said amen to it. Were they aware of it at the seat of government? I have no doubt they as well knew of the plans for destroying the prophet as did those in Carthage or in Warsaw, Illinois. It was planned by some of the leading men of the nation. I have said here once before, to the astonishment of many of our own countrymen, that there was a delegate from each state in the nation when Joseph was killed. These delegates held their council. Journal of Discourses in 1887 William Law admitted that there had been a plot to kill Joseph Smith, and he had attended the meeting at the Carthage Courthouse in June of 1844. He said that many people were present and it was considered what should be done regarding the Mormons. He said that Stephen A. Douglas was also in attendance at that meeting. Governor Ford insisted that Joseph be fairly tried in Carthage and also pledged his faith as governor for his safety. It was a contradiction of terms. It was like a hangman putting a noose on a man and saying, I'm doing this for your own good. Joseph requested that he be given an escort for protection, but Ford refused to comply with his request. There were several warnings delivered by messenger that both Carthage and Warsaw had mobs. Apparently Ford was implicated in the whole plot. It was a repeat of New Testament history, as Helen March Whitney explained. It was the popularity of Joseph as candidate for the presidency, and the power and influence that the Mormon people were gaining, that created a feeling of fear among the apostates and corrupt politicians, and a deep hatred took possession of their hearts, similar to that which was felt by the Jews towards Jesus Christ, and like them they were determined to put an end to his earthly career. Governor Ford is reported to have attended another secret meeting with those who were involved in the murder of Joseph Smith. Warren <laughs> Porter Rockwell made a deposition statement with Thomas Bullock, part of which reads that about the hour of three o'clock in the afternoon of the 27th day of June, 1844, a short time only before Governor Ford addressed the citizens of Nobu, P. Ford and his suit occupied another room in the mansion of Joseph Smith in the city of Novu, when he, the said Rockwell, had of necessity to enter set up a room for his hat, and as he entered the door, all was sitting silent except one man, who was standing behind a chair making a speech, and while in the fact of dropping his right hand from an uplifted position, said, the deed is done before this time, which were the only words I heard while in the room, for on seeing me, they all hushed in silence. At that time I could not comprehend the meaning of the words, but in a few hours after I understood them as referring to the murder of Joseph and Hiram Smith in Carthage jail. So on the 27th of the same month, the secret combination was permitted to carry out the hellish purpose. The Warsaw Sting Call signal seemed to be the paper to give the signal when to strike the fatal blow that sealed the doom of the state of Illinois. It seems also that wherever the headquarters of the kingdom of God is established over the earth, and the head of Beelzebub is established also, for that paper was a true representative of the Dark Legions of Shul and its editor was a true representative of his father Balliol. With the death of Joseph and Hiram Smith, the kingcraft and the political corruption of this government reached its lowest depths. Killing religious and political enemies, supporting the destructive work of mobs, 
denying people their inalienable rights, driving innocent citizens from their homes, businesses and lands, and corrupting all levels of government with such a moral filth that it was a stench in its own nostrils and dash all this painted the picture of what a great nation and government had become. 200. Okay, so, well, we got into that quicker than I thought. I don't think that the timer on this reader program is accurate because it said it was 34 minutes and uh, that was like 30 minutes. So, whatever, it doesn't matter. Let's, uh, okay. Um, all right, so what I'm doing now is I'm pre-recording it for the show that's later on tonight. And um, you'll hear me talking and everything. The phone lines are open. If you have a question or a comment that you wanted to ask or address, you can call into the radio show and push one, and I will take you into the call screening room off the air so your voice and question and comment won't be heard on the live. And then I can talk to you privately while the pre-recorded portion of the program is going. Uh, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. And you can either use that just to listen to the program uh, or you can listen online at the links that I've provided or in the podcast later on. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, if you do uh, have a question or comment during the pre-recorded portion of the program or during the live portion of the program, you can call in that phone number, 917-889-8827, and push 1, and then I will see that your hand has been risen. Um, if you're calling from out of country, a good way to call in is to use Skype and the area code or the country code is 11 for America. This is, uh, the phone number is actually out of Manhattan, New York, New York City. So once again, one last time, 917-889-8827. The New American Religion, pages 183 to 199 of the Four Crafts, program for Friday, October 28, 2022, starting at 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Listen to the podcast at um, tobtr.com forward slash s forward slash 121. Six zero eight nine six. I guess if you're already listening to that, you don't really need to know that information. <laughs> anyway, all right. The American restored Latter-day Saint religion lasted less than 20 years within the boundaries of the United States. Lawyers, priests, and politi- uh, politicians could not tolerate it. So the new religion of revelation was driven out of the country that boasted of the freedom of religion for all. Even at that early date, the Constitution was almost hanging by a thread, with only a few honorable men to defend it. The Prophet Joseph Smith declared, 
the different states and even Congress itself have passed many laws diametrically contrary to the Constitution of the United States. Shall we be such fools as to be governed by its laws, which are unconstitutional? No. That's end quote. That was from Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 279. Politicians do almost anything to gain or maintain votes. On November 4, 1833, the state militia, under the order of Lieutenant Governor Boggs, marched into Jackson County to disarm the mobbers and the Mormons, but only the Mormons were disarmed, enabling Boggs, the militia, and several ministers to perform repeated acts of violence against the unarmed saints. Parley Pratt said it was a heart-rending sight to see the Mormons scattering to every direction and trying to cross the Missouri to keep from being killed. Verbal attacks by the various ministers of religion and the newspapers were relentless. Words of the, the difficulties with Mormons spread throughout Missouri and soon several thousand Missourians, especially those from Jackson County, crossed the Missouri River into the northern part of the state to help their fellow Southerners rid the state forever of these Yankees, abolitionists and Mormons. Or, well, Yankee abolitionist Mormons. And that comes from Mormonism, Americanism, and Politics by Vetterelli, page 90. And we're on page 184. If you're reading along, um, there's a link in the description to the radio show and to the podcast. So you'll see this, you know, when it's live, if you're listening online at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. Or if you're listening um, through the podcast app, where you get, wherever you get your podcasts, there's a link in the description for a, a Tumblr link, and you'll actually be able to read along with me on that Tumblr link. And there's also a description or a, a link for the book, so you can read the, the complete book for free online as well. If you are reading along with us, I'm on page 184. Continuing on, Governor Boggs broke his oath of office when he issued an ex, uh, extermination order upon the Mormons because of public pressure. Joseph Smith voiced his solution on how to handle the problem of politicians not obeying the laws of the Constitution. Joseph Smith said the Constitution should contain a provision that every officer of the government who should neglect or refuse to extend the protection guaranteed in the Constitution should be subject to capital punishment. Oh, so Joseph Smith, the prophet of the Restoration, was in favor of capital punishment. And you know what? If that provision was in the Constitution, this country wouldn't be as wicked and corrupt as it is now. Anyway, that's Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 327. Among the mass of corrupt politicians, however, there is occasionally an, uh, in its employ of government who stands up and valiantly defends freedom and liberty. Such, such a man was General Donovan. On November 1, 1838, Samuel Lucas issued an order to uh, Brigadier General Donovan, Brigadier General Donovan, sir, 
you will take Joseph Smith and the other prisoners into the public square of Far West and shoot them at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. No trial, nothing. Just, you're going to do this because I'm telling you to do it. May that man burn in hell. May he burn in hell. But this is what Donovan said. Let's see here. But General Donovan, in great and righteous indignation, promptly returned the following reply to his superior. Quote, it is cold-blooded murder. I will not obey your order. My brigade shall march for liberty tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. And if you excuse... And if you execute these men, I will hold you responsible before an earthly tribunal. So help me God. And uh, that is recorded in Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 3, pages 190 and 191. The The Prophet Joseph Smith related the same incident from his point of view. And we're on page 185 if you're following along. Quote, Brother Hiram Smith and Emmaus Lyman were brought prisoner into the camp. The officers of the militia held a court-martial and sentenced us to be shot on Friday... Friday. Oh, hold on. Okay, sorry, I had to pause that for a minute. Of course, you don't realize... I don't know if you realize I paused it, but... My three-year-old just came in with raisins, and he was trying to get me to give him raisins. My 16-year-old is downstairs, and he's supposed to be watching the three-year-old while I'm recording this. Well, the life of the father. <laughs> I just That's just the way it goes. Anyway, let's see here. So, um... The officer of the militia held a court-martial and sentenced us to be shot on Friday morning on the public square in Far West as a warning to the Mormons. However, notwithstanding their sentence and determination, they were not permitted to carry out their murderous sentence into execution. Having an opportunity of speaking to General Wilson, I inquired of him why I was thus treated. I... I told him I was not aware of having done anything worthy of such treatment, that I had always been a supporter of the Constitution and of democracy. And by the way, Joseph Smith wasn't considered a general until Nauvoo. I mean, I don't think he was, but like, he wasn't an enlisted member of the military. So how could he be court-martialed? I mean, I might be wrong about that. Maybe I'm missing something, or maybe I've read something and it just hasn't, I haven't retained it. But in Missouri, Joseph Smith was not, he was never an, an, an enlisted member of the military, so how could he be court-martialed? Anyway, continuing on. Um, his answer, I was, I know it. And that is the reason why I want to kill you or have you killed. So, because this Joseph Smith was a supporter of the Constitution, this this general wanted him dead. That's weird. Anyway, that's Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 3, page 190. General Donovan continued to help the Mormons, and he labored 
for the release of Joseph and the others. They were imprisoned until the summer of 1839 when they escaped to Illinois. From that time on to his death, Joseph was considered a fugitive from justice. Joseph, Sidney Rigdon, and Elias Higby and Orrin Porter Rockwell journeyed to the nation's capital to present their grievances and a redress appeal before the President of the United States and to Congress. President Martin Van Buren, however, was one of those politicians who would not risk losing any political votes. Um, Oh, real, real quick... So Donovan, that was he was never a member of the church, and back in the day, that's what they used to call Jack Mormons, member people who were never members of the church, but they supported the church in their constitutional rights. They were considered Jack Mormons, allies of the church. Now, today in our modern day and age, you might consider most of the members of the church jack mormons because the definition the modern day definition of jack mormon is somebody who believes joseph smith was a prophet and they support the church from afar but they don't go to church and they don't participate in the church so um you know uh, definitions have changed um anyway continuing on so uh, Martin Van Buren listened to Joseph Smith relate their grievances of pillage, plunder, rape, robbery, and murder. He looked at the claims Joseph Smith gave him against Missouri from 491 individuals for about $1,381,000. And that comes from Lyman Little, Littlefield's Reminiscence, page 116. Joseph described in detail, quote, During my stay, I had an interview with Martin Van Buren, the president, who treated me very insolently, and it was with great reluctance he listened to our message, which, when he had heard, he said, Gentlemen, your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you, and if I take up for you, I shall lose the vote of Missouri, Uh, We're on page 186 if we're reading along. His whole course went to show that he was an officer seeking, an office seeking, that self-aggrandizement was his ruling passion, and that justice and righteousness were no part of his composition. Doctrinal History of the Church, volume 4, page 80. And you know what? I don't know if Joseph Smith did this, but if it was me, I would have cursed him. Because part of the priesthood is being able to curse these type of people. There was a man who called me a heretic and an apostate. Like, and I was friends with him for a long time. We used to talk about a lot of things. And I called him a her- or he called me a, a heretic and an apostate. And I rose both arms to the square and I cursed him to his face. And within a year, that man's health went from from being relatively healthy to the point where he died. And I was sad about that. I didn't I didn't curse him to die. I I wanted him to repent. Of course people have free agency. They can do whatever they want and he did whatever he wanted and he never did repent. You know, um and about a year later to the day I cursed him, he his 
the heart just gave out. He just died. Continuing on, Joseph had earlier commented on how flippant and foolish the congressman acted. Quote, there is such an itching disposition to display their oratory on the most trivial occasion and on so much eloquent bowling and scraping, bowling and scraping, twisting and turning to make a display of their witticism, witticism, that it seems to us rather a display of folly and show more than substance and gravity. Such has become a great nation like ours. Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 4, page 41. When Martin Van Buren came up for re-election, the saints had every reason to reject him, and they had little more reason to vote for Henry Clay, the candidates for the office of President of the United States at present before the people were Martin Van Buren and Henry Clay. It is morally impossible for this people in justice to, to themselves to vote for the re-election of President Van Buren, a man who criminally neglected his duties as chief magistrate in the cold and unblushing manner which he did when, when appealed to for aid in, in the Missouri difficulties. Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 6, page 187 and 188. In speaking of, of Mr. Clay, his politics are diametric, diametrically opposed to ours. He inclines strongly to the old school of federalist, and as a matter of course would not favor our cause, neither could we consciously conscientiously vote for him and we have yet stronger objections to uh, Mr. Van Buren on other grounds he has sung the old song of Congress Congress has no power to redress you of your grievances which is weird because uh, in the constitution we're supposed to be able to to, uh, have a redress of grievances of, of grievances against the government state and federal you know, that's what a democracy is. Like a repub- a constitutional republic defends each individual in their rights. A democracy defends the rights of the majority. So you've got 57% on welfare right now in this country. Of the adults in this country, 57% are on some kind of welfare. And you have... 42 point something, 43%, who are supporting the rest of the people in this country. And it's just going to get worse, because that's what they want. This is how they're overthrowing our constitutional republic. By paying people to be lazy. I wish I could get on that program. You know, I would like to be supported instead of having to work, but I do not want to be poor for the rest of my life. You know, I could have actually been on disability for my the accident where I got hit by a semi-truck, an owner-operator down in um, Laredo, Texas in 2001. 
they said they told me I could have been on disability because of what happened, the injuries there, and I still have injuries in my neck because of that accident that um, I need to get. Uh, my insurance has to okay uh, the process so that I can get into uh, the CT scan or whatever they call those things. I can't remember if it's CT or the other one. But um, when they saw x-rays two weeks ago of my neck, the the x-ray tech was like, were you in an accident? I was like, yeah, 20-something years ago, like 20, 21 years ago. Yeah, I was in an accident. I've been in pain ever since. And I've been complaining about it, but nobody's done anything about it. And finally, I just talked to the doctor, and I was like, look, this is getting ridiculous, and it's getting worse. Like, my back is killing me. My hands are going numb when I'm driving. You know, so hopefully they can do something, you know, but also when I fell into the chemical pit back in, uh, 2009, it was November of 2009, I was poisoned. Like it was bad. And they told me I could be on disabilities for that too, but I don't want to be poor. I don't want to be on disabilities. I want to be able to work and be able to have a decent life, you know? Um, but anyway, like, I know I'm going off on tangents, but that's my personal life, but uh, things I've had to deal with. Anyway, um, I'll just get back into the reading. We're on page 187. When the President of the United States proved to be worthless in helping the Mormons, church leaders turned to the legislative branch of government. Joseph prepared a memo reviewing the acts of violence and it was submitted by Congress by Senator Richard M. Young from Illinois. This must be one of the most gory, inhumane records of injustice ever recorded and sounds more like it came from some heathen nation rather than from a nation living under the heavenly banner of the U.S. Constitution. The document referred to the Senate Committee on the Judiciary, one of the concluding paragraphs is founded here. For these wrongs, the Mormons ought to have some redress. Yet how and where they shall seek and obtain it, your Constitution guarantees to every citizen, even the humblest, the enjoyment of life, liberty, and property. See, they changed it. They changed it. They, they'll tell you it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. No, it's not. They changed it. It's life, liberty, and property. That was a, the original um, saying. Life, liberty, and property. But no, you don't have the property rights anymore, so they, they replace it with pursuit of happiness. Whatever. Anyway, it promises to all religious freedom... The right to all, uh, to all to worship God beneath their own vine and fig tree, according to the dictates of their conscience, it guarantees all the citizens of the several states the right, the right to become citizens of any one of the states and to enjoy all of the rights and in, immunities of citizenships of the state of his adoption. Yet of all these rights, 
have the Mormons been deprived? They have, without a cause, without a trial, been deprived of life, liberty, and property. They have been persecuted for their religious opinions. They have been driven from the state of Missouri at the point of the bayonet and prevented from enjoying and exercising the rights of citizens of the state of Missouri. It is the theory of our laws that the protection of every legal right, there is is provided a legal remedy. What then, we would respectfully ask, is the remedy of the Mormons. Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 4, page 37. Uh, Let's see here. Okay. March 4, 1840, the Committee on the Judiciary released their decision that this case did not justify or authorize any interposition by the federal government. It was kingcraft at work. So we're on page 188. The Saints also appealed to the legislature of the state of Missouri to to state and federal courts and before judges and juries and governors, many Mormons were descendants of the founding fathers who established the Constitution. Now they were being deprived of their very rights that their ancestors had tried to secure for their posterity. On May 18, 1843, Joseph met with the Missouri judge Stephen A. Douglas and related to him the account of the terrible persecutions and also his interview with the President Martin Van Buren. On this occasion, Joseph Smith related two monumental prophecies. Dine with Judge, dining, dined with Judge Stevens, Stephen A. Douglas, who is presi- presiding at court. After dinner, D- Judge Douglas requested President Joseph to give him a history of the Missouri persecutions, which he did in a very minute manner, for about three hours. He also gave a relation of his journey to Washington City and his application in behalf of the saints to Mr. Uh, to President Martin Van Buren, the President of the United States, for redress, and Mr. Martin Van Buren. Uh, his reply, President Smith, in concluding his remarks, said that if the government which received into its coffers the money of citizens for its public lands, while its officials are rolling in luxury at the expense of its public treasury, cannot protect such citizens in their lives and property, it is an old granny anyhow, and I prophesy in the name of the Lord God of Israel, unless the United States redresses the wrongs committed upon the saints in the state of Missouri and punish the crimes committed by her officers, that in a few years the government will be utterly overthrown and wasted, and there will not be so much as a part shared left for their wickedness in permitting the murder of men, women, and children and the wholesale plunder and extermination of thousands of her citizens to go unpunished, thereby perpetuating a foul and uh, corroding blot 
upon the fair name of this great republic, the very thought of which would have caused the high-minded and patriotic framers of the Constitution of the United States to hide their faces with shame. Judge, you will aspire to the presidency of the United States. And if you ever turn your hand against me or the Latter-day Saints, you will feel the weight of the hand of the Almighty upon you, and you will live to see and know that I have testified the truth to you. For the conversations of this day will stick to you through your life. Message of the First Presidency, Volume 1, page 182 and 183. Douglas, like most candidates in the Kingcraft system, chose to ignore the Constitution and the inalienable or inalienable rights of its citizens and catered to the clamor of the, of the vicious populace who hated Mormons. So I, I don't like it when they, people say unalienable. It's inalienable. What, do you know what a lien is? If you put a lien on somebody's property or you put a lien on their rights, it means that you hold their rights or their property to yourself so they can't exercise their rights or their property. That's what a lien does. It's inalienable, meaning unalienable, meaning you cannot put a lien on their rights. You cannot hold their rights up because of whatever. It's inalienable. Anyway, um, in his flowery political speech against them in 1857, he said, it will be the duty of Congress to apply the knife and cut out this loathsome and disgusting ulcer. No temporizing policy, no halfway measures will then answer. In my opinion, the first step should be the absolute and unconditional repeal of the Organic Act, blotting the territorial government out of existence on the ground that they are alien enemies and outlaws denying their allegiance and defying the authorities of the United States. And that was Missouri Republican, June 18th, 1857. So, oh, I don't even know what to say. When you are a threat to the devil's kingdom, the devil is going to try to destroy you in every single way that he can. The reason why they had so much persecution is because they were a threat to the devil's kingdom. At that point, after 1832, they were under condemnation for treating the former for treating the revelations and instructions that God had given to them and the former commandments lightly, they were under condemnation, but they were not yet cursed and rejected. That didn't happen to, until 8... Well, Jesus talked about that in Revelation, uh, January 18, 1841. He said if they don't do certain things, they'll be cursed and rejected as a church with their dead, which eventually they were. And at that point, there were still things that, that they were still a threat to the devil's kingdom. But the church itself, after it was rejected in Nauvoo, 
began to release the doctrines, to change doctrines, to change the washings and anointings, to change the endowments, to change the revelations and even change the Book of Mormon and hide revelations and, and whatever. And now they are no longer a threat to the devil's kingdom. Heber J. Grant signed an alliance with the Rockefellers and the Illuminati back in the 1920s. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, after it left Nauvoo, was rejected with their dead. They were rejected in 1843. They are no longer a threat to the devil's kingdom. Satan doesn't go after them like he used to. There's a lot of the restoration that if you're just a Molly Mormon or Peter Priesthood kind of guy, you do not know. You only know what they teach you, what they allow you to know. You get into the the historical stuff, the stuff that they've tried to destroy, and you're going to find the truth out that what is going on now in the modern Mormon church is not what the restoration was about. They care nothing about the deeper doctrines or the redemption of Zion. And they are no longer a threat to the devil's kingdom. They are part of the devil's kingdom. That's why you have leaders of your church going to Rome and having a, con- uh, a conference with uh, with the Pope, you know. Like, it, like it, it's just Babylonian. And one of the revelations that I have, which you don't have, I have it. God told me that his church has been hijacked by false administrators. And, and I say, okay, so that's what God says. I'm not exactly sure where I got this saying, but I've, I've had it for years, that the leaders of your church have been hijacked by Babylonian businessmen. But in that revelation, I was told false administrators. They don't want you to know that the church was rejected in Nauvoo. They don't want you to uh, to practice any of the higher laws. The only reason they have a temple ceremony for you, which they've changed over and over and over, and they've diluted it past delusion, is is because if they can get you to think that that's important... that you'll keep paying them tithing. It's a good business game that they're playing with your money. Joseph Smith said that it is uh, it is not the will of God that we lay one, dollar, uh, one more dollar out to build up the devil's kingdom. Yet they'll take your, scything, or your, your sacred tithing funds and they will use it to enrich uh, companies and enrich themselves. We're supposed to be a separate and peculiar people, but they want us to be right in the mix with it. (coughs) Excuse me, we're only at 39%. From that moment 
on, his political career and his health went downhill. Within a year of his defeat, the 48-year-old Douglas died, a broken, a broken-hearted man, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Joseph Smith. When the Mormons had voted against the Whig Duncan because of his position against the Mormons, the Whigs cried dirty politics and claimed that the Mormons had exchanged religion for politics. They entered into a crusade against the Mormons, which knew no bounds. As General Ford wrote, the Whigs generally and a part of the Democrats determine upon driving the Mormons out of the state, and everything connected with Mormons became political. Ford's History of Illinois, page 319. Without a presidential candidate, they could, could support the saints existed in a hostile political climate in Illinois that was mixed with hatred and self-defense. Without being able to cast a favorable vote, the Mormons decided on a candidate of their own, Joseph Smith. On May 17th of 1844, so uh, was that like 40 days before he was executed? So about 40 days before Joseph Smith was executed or assassinated... Why don't we just say that? Why don't we stop calling it, uh, what do they call it, martyrdom? He was murdered. But he was a political candidate for president of the United States, so why don't we just say assassinated? Because that's what it was. A convention was called, and the Reform Party was born with Joseph Smith as its presidential candidate. He declared his views thusly, I feel... It to be my right and privilege to obtain what influence and power I can lawfully in the United States for the protection of the injured, innocent, and if I lose my life in a good cause, I am willing to be sacrificed on the altar of virtue, righteousness, and truth. In maintaining the laws of the Constitution of the United States, if need be, for the general good of mankind. Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 6, page 210 and 211. The position of the controlling politicians was then similar to the chief priests and Pharisees who moaned, if we let that, oh, if we let him, speaking of Jesus Christ, thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. John chapter 11, verse 48. Politically corrupt men will resort to even murder to keep their place and nation, and that's why Joseph said, If I lose my life in a good cause, the Lord had once warned him that the enemy of the secret chambers seeketh, seeketh your life. Doctrinal history, I'm sorry, that one is in the Doctrine and Covenants, chapter 38, verse 28. So the king crafters immediately began holding such secret meetings and plotting Joseph Smith's destruction. But surprisingly, Joseph Smith's nomination was taken seriously by many voters throughout the country. State and federal politics 
had sunk to such a low in the United States that a new candidate presented a refreshing hope. Joseph once remarked, quote, When I get a hold of the Eastern papers and see how popular I am, I am afraid myself that I shall be elected. Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 6, page 243. And we're on page 191 if you're reading along with me. (coughs) Excuse me. One of the ministers of that time, a Peter Cartwright, also noted when Joe Smith was announced a candidate for President of the United States, almost every infidel associated in the Union declared in his favor. That's Autobiography of Peter Cartwright, page 346. Of course, to him, anyone voting for Joseph Smith was an infidel. Another non-Mormon W.M. Daniels clearly saw the reason for Joseph Smith's increasing popularity, quote, he presented such an array of wisdom and talent that the rotten theories of the demagogues began one by one to become odious, and he rapidly grew in popularity and strength. The principles and measures he proposed struck at the root of every vice that infected the government, threatening future calamity to her institutions. His principles harmonized with the primitive organization of the government which, from which it has been twisted by disloyal spirits. And that is uh, page 166 of Mormonism, Americanism, and Politics by Veta Rowley. Hundreds, if not thousands, of Mormon elders mounted the circuit to support their candidate and present his views on the powers and policies of government. They disseminated copies of the political platform and also sent them to the leading newspapers throughout the nation. One item that he mentioned was that when the poor people of the country can be trampled on by a mob, when... Will such a lawless mob move to others? He wrote a letter to James Bennett saying, Where, sir, will you be safely or or the safety... I'm sorry. Where, sir, will be your safety or the safety of your children if my children can be led to the slaughter with, it, with impunity by the hands of the murderous rebels? Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 5, page 158, or on page 192. Joseph Smith said that it was time for someone to hold that office who would be a president for the United States instead of using it for personal gain, power, and recognition. He challenged Henry Clay, quote, Can anything be drawn from your life? character or conduct that is worthy of being held up to the gaze of this nation as a model of virtue, charity, or wisdom? I hate the imbecility of the American statesman. I detest the shrinkage of candidates for office from pledges and responsibilities. End quote. Times and Seasons, volume 5, page 547. 
Joseph Smith saw the destiny of this nation, but new ways of averting the Civil War. According to George Q. Cannon, and stated in his book on the prophet, certain it is that Joseph Smith, had Joseph Smith been elected president of the United States and, and had been sustained by Congress in his policies, this land would have been set, spared the desolating war which filled its hamlets and fields with carnage and its homes with so, so be, uh, sobbing widows and orphans. And he's talking about the Civil War. Because Joseph Smith was an abolitionist. He wanted to sell the public lands to raise funds to buy every slave in the country from their slave masters and set them free and send them home. How different this nation would be if Joseph Smith was able to implement his policies as President of the United States. Just did that one thing. If anybody would have taken what he wanted to do and just did that, I mean, how different the nation would be today. We wouldn't have all these movies about the Civil War because it never would have happened. The states would still have their rights. Uh, Abraham Lincoln... Uh, it wasn't about just slavery. The The South was fighting for states' rights. Now, I don't agree with slavery. Not even a little bit. I think it was it, one of the worst things that the, the Gentiles did settling this land was to bring slaves from Africa or make slaves of anyone else. I know I'm talking about the Irish and the Scottish and the Indians, you know, but I, I don't even believe that, like the Indians had slaves too, did you know that? Uh, before we, before the Gentiles even came over here, we had slaves in this country. And I'm only saying we because my great-grandmother was Iroquois Indian. We had slaves in this country. Oh, well, I guess it wasn't a country. Uh, there were slaves among the First Nation people. I don't want, they don't want to talk about that, but but it was a barbarous thing that it was disgusting. And if they would have followed Joseph Smith's plans to buy up the slaves and send them home, we wouldn't have had the civil rights problems. We wouldn't have had uh, all of the crap that is going on these days, and we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have the civil war. And people who wanted to come to this country could immigrate legally, not under force. Anyway, that last quote comes from Life of Joseph Smith the Prophet by, by Canon, page 187. But because of the general wickedness of the American people and their leaders, Joseph Smith prophesied in 1832 of the Civil War, see Doctrine and Covenants, Section 87, which commenced 28 years afterwards, and he said it was because of the chastening hand of the retribution by divine power 
How interesting that Missourian David Archinson and Samuel Lucas, who wanted the Mormons driven out and killed, said in 1838, from late out outrage, from late outrageous committed, but outrageous committed by the Mormons, civil war is inevitable. Yeah, because they were talking about civil war within their own state. Anyway, that was Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 3, page 176. At that time, however, they thought it would be a battle against the Mormons, but their words were fulfilled in the war among their own people. Page 193. Similarly, in a public meeting at Liberty, Missouri in 1836, Chairman John Byrd wrote some propositions one of which was, second, that it is the fixed and settled conviction of the, this meeting that unless the people of the people commonly called Mormons will agree to stop immediately the immigration of their people to this country and take measures to remove themselves from, from it, a civil war is inevitable. Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 2, page 452. You know, I actually kind of have a little bit of a sympathy towards these people because, like, these damn Yankees were coming down, these abolitionists were coming down into Missouri, into slave territory, and they were abolitionists, right? So these Southerners didn't want them there. The same way I don't want Californian lib libtards uh, to move into every county, Utah, but it happens. Californians come over here and they buy everything and then they want to push their politics. We have a Democratic sheriff running for election right now in Emory County, Utah. Like, he has enough to get on the ballot? That's ridiculous. In Emory County, Utah, we are as red as blood in this, this area. Anyway, just uh, I don't agree with this this guy. Like they didn't want the Mormons there because they were abolitionists, and the Mormons were a bit smug. They were like, "This is the land of Zion, and this is where we're gonna God's gonna give us all this land and whatever." And like there were some problems, but we live in the United States of America, and you know what I can't do? I can't stop these libtards from California moving into my county. Unfortunately. And they think that the government is a democracy where the majority majority rules. It's not. Like, and they're not a majority here, but... Um, if the majority ruled, like in a proper democracy, all of us Republicans would kick their butts out. Of course, I don't claim to be Republican either. I lean towards conservative, uh, uh, what do you call it, conservative uh, theocracy. <laughs> anyway, I, I can't remember what the name of it is right now, but Continuing on with the reading. He too thought this war would be between the American people and the Mormons, but it was a prophecy to fall upon his own head 
and among his own people. The people of Missouri thought about war, talked about war, and wanted war. Civil war, they cried, and civil war they got. Civil war they cried, and civil war they got. Joseph Smith prophesied of this war against again just before he was killed. Several of the officers of the troops in Carthage and other gentlemen curious to see the prophet visited Joseph in his room in Carthage jail. General Smith asked them if there was anything in his appearance that indicated that he was the desperate character his enemies represented him to be, and he asked them to give him their honest opinion on the subject. They reply, their reply, the reply was, no, sir, your appearance would indicate the very contrary, General Smith, but we cannot see what is in your heart, neither can we tell what your intentions are, what your intentions, to which Joseph Smith replied, very true, gentlemen, you cannot see what is in my heart, and you are therefore unable to judge me or my intentions. But I can see what is in your hearts and you and, t- and will tell you what I see. I can see that you thirst for blood and nothing but my blood will satisfy you. It is not for the crime of any description that I and my brethren are thus continually persecuted and harassed by our enemies. But there are other motives, and some of them I have expressed so far as relates to myself, and insomuch as you and the people thirst for for blood, I prophesy in the name of the Lord that you shall witness scenes of the blood, of blood and sorrow to your entire satisfaction. Your souls shall be perfectly satiated with blood, And many of you who are now present shall have an opportunity to face the cannon's mouth from the source of of who you think not of. And those people that desire this great evil upon me and my brethren shall be filled with regret and sorrow because of the scenes of desolation and distress that await them. They shall seek for peace and shall not be able to find it. Gentlemen, you will find what I have told you to be true. Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 6, page 566. Well, we're about 66% done with the reading for today. And we're an hour and 30, well, 25 minutes into it. I don't know. I might have to do two, two separate recordings I'll I'll try to keep it all in one program, but if we have callers, we're going to go into overdrive tonight. If you're listening to the live streaming portion of the radio program on the the Blog Talk Radio app, if we go past 8 o'clock tonight, it'll go into overdrive. We have an hour of overdrive, but the only people who can listen to the overdrive portion of the program are those who have called in. I don't remember how many lines. We used to have 100 lines available to call in. I think it, I think they they uh, reduced it to 50 lines now. So, uh, you know, if we get to the point where we're getting up to 8 o'clock and we're still going, 
we will go into overdrive. All those who listen uh, to the live portion of the program on the app at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon, your feed will end. You will not be able to hear the rest of the program. You'll have to listen to the podcast later. But if you do call in uh, for the 50 or the 100 lines, whatever it is, um, those people will be able to listen to the rest of the live portion of the radio program. And if you push one or you get on the, the thing and you ask some questions in the chat, um, I'll answer them. Um, but we're probably going to go into uh, – this is probably going to be one of the longer programs. So like I said, we have two hours of live streaming and for those who call in, we can go up to an hour uh, overdrive, but only for those that call in. Years later, the very forces that caused such pain and persecution for Mormons would in turn receive even more upon themselves, as Richard Vetterelli stated, quote, the same forces commanded by many of the same officers that had murdered and driven the Mormons from Missouri crossed into Kansas there to wreck their bloody designs upon the inhabitants of the territory and thus to set the stage for the terrible conflict that was so uh, was soon to engulf the nation. End quote. Mormonism, Americanism, and Politics, page 255. Oh, and by the way, that just for one more time, I mean, if I don't say it enough, I'll say it again. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. Details of this conflict and subsequent bloodshed were explained by B.H. Roberts. Quote, The struggle began by the abolition party of the North, North organizing immigrant aid societies and sending immigrants of their own faith into Kansas, the slaveholders of Missouri also wanted settlers represented, representing their faith and interests into the new territory in the hope of bringing it into the Union as a slave state. This brought on a border warfare in which the settlements of western Missouri and eastern Kansas alternately suffered from the raids in the counter-raids of the respective parties through some six years before the outbreak of the Civil War, as to which were the more lawless or cruel, the fanatical abolitionists or the pro-slavery party, the Jayhawkers as, as organized bands of ruffians of the former party were called, or the Bushwhackers as a similar organized party of the pro-slavery men were called is not a question necessary for me to discuss here. Both held the laws in contempt and vied with each other in committing atrocities. The western counties of Missouri, where the Latter-day Saints had suffered so cruelly at the hands of the people of those counties some 18 or 20 years before were in the border where warfare in this border where warfare lay desolate and all the hard ships the Missourians had inflicted upon the saints were now visited upon their own heads 
only more abundantly. Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 3, uh, page LXII through LXIII. I think that's 112 and 113. I don't know. I'm not good with Roman numerals. So that's in the introduction so of doctrinal history of the church, I guess. Introduction. Okay. Well, this description confines the scene of vi- scenes of violence and rapine to the border communities such of the Missouri, south of the Missouri River. It included Jackson County, however, which was one of the heaviest suffered both in the border's warfare and subsequently during the Civil War. Still, the counties north of that stream also suffered from lawlessness and violence. Uh, And that is uh, Doctrinal History History of the Church, Volume 3, also in the introduction, page LXIV, I guess. And Missouri, when all things are considered, and especially Western Missouri, suffered more than any other state of the Union. In other states, the war lasted about uh, lasted at most by about four years. But counting her western border warfare in the struggle for Kansas, the war was waged in Western Missouri from 1855 to 1865, ten years. And for many years after the close of the Civil War, a guerrilla warfare was intermittently carried out by bands of outlaws harbored in western Missouri, especially in Jackson County, Ray County, Caldwell County, and Clay Counties, that terrorized the communities and shocked the world by the daring and atrocities of their crimes including bank robberies in open day, express train wrecking and robberies and murders. Not until 1881 was this effectively stopped by the betrayal and murder of the outlaw chief of these bands. Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 3, page LXXII. All right, we're on page 196, and we're uh, 76% done with the reading for today. The prophet Joseph Smith knew that there was men in political offices who were not fit to be there, and he warned the people about those galvanic cronies who do nothing but draw money from the treasury, and promote their bogus democracy. Times and Seasons, Volume 5, page 509. There was the hiring of excessive government employees. Too many were living on the public payroll. Government was becoming a bureaucracy, and it was an open forum for jobs, favors, and contracts with governments so large the usurpation of unconstitutional powers Inevitable controls and the tide of laws and regulations would soon drown the citizens with taxes and the loss of free agency. As Joseph Smith said, the Philistine lords 
have shorn our nation of its goodly locks in the lap of Delilah. Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 6, page 205. However, 100 years later, later Barry Goldwater said in represent... Hold on. Okay, so, uh, sorry, I had to fix something real quick. So, Barry Goldwater was actually... A republic, or no, he was a Democrat, um, a Democrat candidate for president of the United States back in the 70s or 80s. I can't remember when. Anyway, continuing with his quote: Throughout history, the government has proved to be the chief instrument in thwarting men's liberty. Government represents power in the hands of some men to control, regulate, and regulate the lives of other men. And power, as Lord Acton said, corrupts men. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that was from Conscious of a Conservative, Goldwater, page 17. I guess he was a conservative. Huh. Goldwater was a presidential candidate. Maybe he was the presidential candidate against, uh, who was that guy before Reagan? I can't remember his name. I actually served a mission in the area where he lived. Jimmy Carter, that peanut farmer. Yeah. (laughs) He's actually, well, I don't know if he's still alive, but um, when I was on my mission, he was a Sunday school teacher at church in, uh, Next, like pretty close to where we lived. So we lived in Douglas, Georgia, and uh, he lived east of us, and I can't remember. But I think Barry Goldwater was a conservative Republican candidate for president who ran against Jimmy Carter. All right, let's see here. Joseph knew that he would suffer death, not from the common mobocrats themselves, but from orders given by those in higher political positions. The situation is comparable to the drug peddlers on the street who are guilty of criminal activities, but it is actually the manufacturers, the men in high and secret places producing the poison. That is the real culprit. Conspirators behind the scenes are the worst offenders. And uh, I got something to say about that in a minute. Political demagogues became more determined to destroy Joseph Smith than they were in trying to promote themselves. Okay, I just have to say this. So, yeah, you've got people who, uh, you know, sell drugs on the streets and all of that, and it's horrible, and, and I wish that didn't happen. Um before I converted to Mormonism, to before I knew that Joseph Smith was a true prophet, um, I was actually baptized into the church as a, as a, I think I was nine or ten when I was I I think I was nine actually it was 1986 and I believe it was in April or March. I wasn't baptized because my family was active. I was baptized because my grandparents told my mom that she would not be in the wheel anymore if they did not get me baptized. Now, my grandparents did have a hand in raising me, um, so I had some exposure to Mormonism, but we lived in a town with 30 people in it, and my grandpa was a double-leg amputee of World War II, 
and we'd go to Sacrament, and uh, that's about all he could stand. And so my church time, we usually was on the back row with my grandma and grandpa and me falling asleep on my grandma's shoulder. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, but when I was older, I, uh, like a teenager still, I became a Baptist. And I became very anti-Mormon. And I became suicidal and I started using alcohol and drugs to drown out my suicidal ideations. And I became very dark, very depressed, very angry at God and family and everything else because uh, of my homelessness and stuff when I was a teenager and neglect, and the abuses that I still suffer from. I'm 45 years old. I still have issues with what happened to me when I was younger. And I became uh, what they call a goth, right? And I started this gang in Ogden, Utah, called the Mormon Mafia, because... Like, most of my friends were Mormons, but none of us believed it, and we all did not like the church, and we all, whatever. So I started this gang, and it was just kind of a joke, and I had friends who had connections who were on uh, Hill Air Force Base in Clearfield, Utah, and they brought drugs into the country, and they brought them in on military aircraft. And they gave them to other friends of mine who called themselves after the Mormon Mafia, and they sold the drugs in Ogden and, and the surrounding Weber and Davis counties. And I was the godfather because I'm the one that started the stupid thing, but I didn't, I never, it was a joke. It was just like, hey, we're the Mormon Mafia, ha, ha, ha. Anyway, but, like, I've heard reports of the CIA bringing in drugs. Like, I know that the military does it. I know that it, I know that people at different levels get paid off and they just turn a blind eye to it. And I don't know who's sending it into the country. I was a low, low man on the totem pole. I mean, I didn't actually deal or sell any of the drugs, but I used them. But I never had any on me. I always... Uh, if I was going to be in a place, I'd made sure it was safe, and then I would use the drugs, right? But I never actually carried it, because I was paranoid. Very paranoid. Anyway, um, oh man, we got, we're at 82%, and you know what I'm going to have to do? I can only upload clips of 100 megabytes or less, and I know we're probably getting close to the 100 megabytes thing here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read, well, we're going to end on page 90, 197. And I will restart a new uh, clip starting with page 197. And I might even read... Yeah, I'll, I'll probably uh, read a little bit... I'll I'll rewind myself and I'll read a little bit from uh, from what I just read 
and then we'll go into page 197. So, like I said, okay, so I'm going to end this portion of the radio program. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. And I will uh, continue on with the second part of uh, the recording so I can get the rest of this finished in under 100 megabytes. We're at 82%, so we've got 18% left to read. And I'll get that all taken care of. So we'll be right back. Like I said, once again, the guest call number is 917-889-8827. All right, so this is part two. I'm glad I did that when I did because uh, we were at 94.9 megabytes. And I only had... I have to keep it under 100 megabytes for each clip. I probably could have finished it, but if I would have went over even one megabyte, then it would have screwed everything up. So anyway, um, political demagogues became more determined to destroy Joseph Smith than they were in trying to promote themselves. Meetings were held to determine the plan of action 9.40 a.m., Mr. Woods and Mr. Reed called, and we're on page 197 if you're reading along. They said another consultation of the officers had taken place, and the formal orders of the governor for marching to Nauvoo, that's Governor Ford, with the whole army were countermanded. Dr. Southwick was in the meeting seeing what was going on, he afterward told Stephen Markham that the the purport of the meeting was to take into consideration the best way to stop Joseph Smith uh, Smith's career, as his views on the government were widely circulated and took like wildfire. They said if he did not get into the uh, presidential chair this election, he would be sure to next time, and if. Illinois and Missouri would join together and kill him, they would not be brought to justice for it. There were delegates in said meetings from every state of the Union there except three. Governor Ford and Captain Smith were also in the meeting. Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 6, page 605. Brigham Young referred to the councils and meetings in which Joseph Smith's death was planned, he said, quote, he, speaking of Joseph Smith, stepped forth like a man and proffered his services to save the nation that is now breaking. He would have saved it, and if they had permitted him, what did they bestow upon him in return? They made a martyr of him because they assassinated him. Let's use that word. They succeeded in shedding his blood and that of the patriarch Hiram Smith. They shed the blood of the innocent and the nation said amen to it. Were they aware of it at the seat of government? I have no doubt they as well knew of the plans for destroying the prophet as did those in Carthage or in Warsaw, Illinois, and it was planned by some of the leading men of this nation. 
I have said here once before, and to the astonishment of many in our, of our own countrymen, that there was a delegate from each state in the nation when Joseph was killed. These delegates held their council. Journal of Discourses, Volume 8, page 320 and 300, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and 321. In 1887, William Law admitted that there had been a plot to kill Joseph Smith, and he had attended the meeting in the Carthage Carthage Courthouse in June of 1844. He said that many people were present, and it was considered that what should be done regarding the Mormons. And that comes from the Prophet of Palmyra by T. Gregg, page 504. And we're on page 198 if you're reading along with us. We're at 89%. He said that Stephen A. Douglas was also in attendance at the meeting. The governor, Ford, insisted that Joseph be fairly tried in Carthage and also pledged his faith as governor for his safety. This was a contradiction of terms. It was like a hangman pulling a noose on a man and saying, I'm doing this for your own good. Joseph requested that he be given an escort for protection, but Ford refused to comply with his request. There were several warnings delivered by messengers that both Carthage and Warsaw had mobs. Apparently, Governor Ford was implicated in the whole plot. It was the repeat of New Testament history, as Ellen Mar Whitney explained, quote, It was the popularity of Joseph as a candidate for the presidency and the powers and influence that the Mormon people were gaining that created a feeling of fear amongst the apostates and corrupt politicians and a deeper hatred took possession of their hearts similar to that which was felt by the Jews towards Jesus Christ. And like them, they were determined to put an end to his earthly career. And that's from Woman's Exponent, volume 11, page 114. Governor Ford is reported to have attended another secret meeting with those who were involved in the murder of Joseph Smith. Orrin Porter Rockwell made a deposition statement with Thomas Bullock, part of which reads, quote, at, about the third of, at about the hour of three o'clock in the afternoon on the 27th day of June, 1844, a sh- short time only before Governor Ford addressed the citizens of Nauvoo, Governor Ford and his suit occupied an upper room in the mansion of Joseph Smith in the city of Nauvoo when he, the said Rock- Rockwell, had of necessity to enter said upper room for his hat. As he entered the door, all were sitting silent except one man who was standing behind a chair making a speech. And while in the fact of dropping his right hand 
from the uplifted position said, the deed is done before this time, which were the only words I heard while in the room. For on seeing me, they all hushed in silence. At that time, I could not comprehend the meaning of the words. But in a few hours after I understood them, as referring to the murder of Joseph and Hiram Smith in the Carthage Jail, Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 6, page 588 and 589. So Orrin Porter Rockwell was a friend of Joseph Smith when they were kids in Palmyra. Rockwell, I think, was a couple of years younger than Joseph Smith. So Porter Rockwell's childhood friend, lifelong friend, heard these men in council in Joseph Smith's own home saying that the deed is done by now. So on the 27th of that same month, the secret combination was permitted to carry out the hellish purposes. The Warsaw Stinkerall, or signal, seemed to be the paper to give the signal when to strike the fatal blow that sealed the doom of the state of Illinois. It seemed also that wherever the headquarters of the kingdom of God is established over the earth, there is a head there is um, there the head of Beelzebub is established also, and for that paper was a true representative of the Dark Legions of Sheol, and its editor was a true representative representative of his father Belial or Baal Belial, whatever. Anyway, that was George Morse's autobiography, transcript BYU-S, page 36. With the death of Joseph and Hiram Smith, the kingcraft and the political corruption of this government reached its lowest depths. Oh, they've got lower sense. That's my opinion. Killing religious and political enemies, supporting the destructive work of mobs, denying the power, denying the people their inalienable rights, driving innocent citizens from their homes, businesses, and lands, and corrupting all levels of government with such immoral filth that it was a stench in its own nostrils. All this painted the picture of what a great nation and government had become. So that's the end of the reading for today, which is put uh, pretty good because I'm finishing this at 5.44 p.m. on Friday, 
October 28th, 2022. I think that's what today is. It's Friday. In fact, I can call in right now because it's 545 to start the program, which is going live in 15 minutes. Um, The reason why I pre-record this stuff is because I cough a lot. And I have these little interruptions from my kids or different things happen. And it's just easier to record it and to be able to pause when I need to in order to... um, In order to, you know, not have a whole bunch of disruptions. Like, I've had to pause several times because I have phlegm in my throat. Um, I had a bacterial bronchitis infection. I think it was bacterial. Um, uh, like, three weeks ago, and it's still messing with me a little bit. And... um and I cough a lot. I just do. I always have. I've I've had phlegm for years. It's stupid. I hate it. But um, it's nice to be able to pause and and then start again after I've had my little coughing fit or, or whatever. That's why I don't do videos anymore. Like I do short videos. I used to record the whole program on on YouTube or Facebook Live. I don't do that anymore specifically because I use this way to record the podcasts. So I pre-record it. I've got like 12 minutes now or whatever it is to get this uploaded and then I'll call into the program and I will listen to it as I watch the studio. And like I said, as I'm watching the studio and as the pre-recorded portion of the program is going on, If there are any callers, whenever I'm doing this, as long as it's not a podcast upload only, if I'm doing a live, you know, I'll watch the studio. And if there is anyone who has any questions or comments that does not want to go on the air, you can always call in and push one. And if I see it, I will bring you into the call screening room and then we can talk and you can ask me your questions or comments. And I might even at the after the recorded portion, I might bring it up and and say, hey, this person called. I won't give them your your name or anything, but this person from Utah called or Idaho or wherever you're from, Singapore, Bangladesh, wherever. And I'll say they had this question and this is my. Okay, well, we don't have any callers and nobody in chat, so we will not go into overdrive. Thank you for listening to the program. We'll be back on Monday at 6 p.m. I do a program. I tried to do a program Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 6 p.m. till 8 and possibly 9 if we go into overdrive at that point happens if we have guest callers so all right well we'll get into the music now and uh, we'll be back on monday thank you for listening take care everyone god bless goodbye
With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.